How's everybody doing? Good. Good. Um, man, good to be with you guys on a Monday, Thursday. Um, since it's a little smaller, I'm going to stand right here with you guys. Um, hey, tonight, four different readings, uh, beginning in the book of Deuteronomy. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn there. Um, Deuteronomy 26 is where we'll begin this evening. Um, in the same way that we spoke of history and hope with Palm Sunday, we're, we're going we're to look in that vein again this evening. We're looking back into Deuteronomy 26, uh, where we see in verses 5 through 8, that's where we're going to be in a moment, um, this very brief retelling historically, ultimately of the, how the Passover meal came to be. And we're going to see the history behind what the disciples and what Jesus would share in and partake in in this meal that's to be celebrated that Christ transforms into the Lord's Supper. So we're going to begin in Deuteronomy chapter 26. And if you want to put a finger in John 13, we're going to be there as well. John 13 as well. This is Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 5 through 8. It says this. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there. Few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. You might hear these words and kind of wonder, what does that have to do with this? This is Monday, Thursday, and this is a communion celebration, so why would we look at Deuteronomy? I think it's really, really important for us to understand, and, and for all of us, and I think most of us that are here, have experienced the Lord's Supper rather consistently throughout not only our time here at Double Oak Community Church as a local body together, but perhaps also in the church we grew up in. In our faith history, you've taken communion, a number of you, many, many times. It's a meal in which we look back to the past, we embrace faith in the present, and we look toward the hope of the future of Christ's return. When we look to the past, you and I look back to what Christ has done for us. The body. The bread. The blood, the cup. But look back further into the history of God's people and you'll see what this meal was and how revolutionary it is with what Jesus does with it. How this meal has transformed and takes the shape of which we partake today. Um, any, any person that would describe a true Seder, a true Passover meal, would uh, the, the Jew of all Jews, Paul himself and others, would say that that meal has to consist of three very specific things. Now, none of us, uh, I, I don't, unless, unless I could be wrong here, I don't, I don't think any of us have a Jewish particularly heritage or background, so we might not have celebrated the Passover meal, and yet 
tonight we're going to talk about what that is and why it's so important and how that ties so deeply to the Lord's Supper. When you read these verses, you're going to get a picture of, and, and there's, a, there's a subtle depiction that Moses offers of that Passover meal. It's found here because the three elements, as I was mentioning, that Paul would say that would have to be, that any, any Jewish person would say this, these have to be a part of this Passover meal. It's three things. It's bitter herbs. It's the cup. And it would be the bread. One thing's missing. It's the lamb. What's happening in Deuteronomy is a picture of what will come. Even in the Gospels, as Jesus gives us, the Lord's Supper. Look into verse 6 and you see this. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. So you've got this picture of this wandering Aramean. This is Abraham, who, and, and the allusion here in Deuteronomy is this picture that's given to him of Genesis 12, this promise that God's people will be numerous, as many as the stars. To be blessed and grow a great nation. We see that happen. It comes to fruition in Egypt under the reign of Pharaoh. And as a result, Pharaoh sees this moment as one of hardship for his own kingdom. The Israelites were taking over Egypt. Great in number, they multiplied just as God had promised And so in order to thwart that, in order to regain control, the Pharaoh places them under this hard, hard labor. Every Passover that's remembered, the disciples would have seen those that celebrated this Passover meal that we find in all of the gospel accounts, they would have had these bitter herbs those bitter herbs, very much something like, um, for us, horseradish. All right? Now, we got an Arby's now, so we're hot stuff. And I bet a lot of people dig the horsey sauce, right? But if you just have horseradish on its own, anyone ever done that? You taste that. It is, what does it do? It makes you cry. It's bitter. I mean, it's literally almost inedible to a degree because it's so powerful and so pungent and it stings the taste buds. Doesn't sound like a real celebratory meal, right? I don't want to do that yearly. Like birthday cake's a good idea to do yearly. But horseradish, a bitter herb, something akin to that, not so much. Why? Every Passover, God's people would eat the bitter herb to remember the hardship to remember that God had delivered them from that. In addition to that, they would take a cup. In verse 8, you see, And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonder. No more great deed of terror than that of those who had a doorpost that was not covered in blood. Where death would come for those who were not protected by the blood of the lamb that would be over the doorpost that would signify covenant connection with God. Those would be spared from destruction. And so, a cup is taken to remember that blood over the doorpost, to remember historically how God has delivered his people, the bread. 
You look into Exodus 16, and you see that one of the signs and the wonders that this passage articulates, it's remembering the bread, the unleavened bread, one that, that God instructs his people to make as they leave in haste on that final night before this terror comes in Egypt, and also the bread that is given to them, that wonder that is given to them, that bread that rains down from heaven, both remembered in this moment. If you look into each of the synoptic gospels, if you look into Matthew and you look into Mark and you look into Luke and you see the accounts of the institution of the Lord's Supper, you're going to find something really, really, really unique. You're not going to see bitter herbs there. You're also not going to see a lamb there. Here's why this is really powerful. Jesus is doing something new. That bitterness once remembered, Jesus absorbs it all, and he'll take it all on the cross. Every bit of bitterness, every bit of brokenness to be remembered no more. Moreover, as Jesus serves bread and cup to his brothers, you'll notice there's no lamb described at this meal because that spotless lamb is there before them. He's serving them this bread and this cup. Now we're going to look into John chapter 13. Unlike the synoptics, unlike the passages that that a lot of us are familiar with that really describe Jesus' instituting the Lord's Supper, John's gospel does something drastically different. Remember this past Palm Sunday, we were in John's gospel in in chapter 12, and looking at Jesus coming into Jerusalem, this triumphant entry, this time where he mentions that his time to depart the world is coming. And in John 13, we see that it is now here. This is John 13, verses 1 through 15. Read it along with me. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It doesn't sound on the surface. You read that whole thing and it doesn't really feel like a Monday Thursday, like a communion, like a Lord's Supper passage. But the things that we find in this passage that John does are really unique. He says in verse 1, before the feast of the Passover, and then verse 2, during supper. John's setting the stage and really presenting a vantage point into this moment that is really, really unique. Unlike the synoptics that would kind of describe the meal itself, in John's gospel, he's describing all the things around the meal. And because of this, because of the way he describes these things, he's actually going to help us see all of the meaning that is infused into the Lord's Supper. There's a couple of really important things to note here. Now, before the feast, Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world. If you look back up into John, even John 12, what we read last week, there is the reference to the picture of the fact that Jesus knew his time had not yet come. So now Jesus sees the end. Remember, remember on Palm Sunday, the Palm Sunday reading from the triumphal entry, and we see that line that John inserts there when he says, the disciples did not understand but that it was later, only later after Jesus is glorified that they would understand. In this passage, Jesus is continually telling his disciples in the midst of what he's doing, you don't understand. And he's not bothered by it. He's not angered by it. He's not disappointed. He's not frustrated. And he's certainly not caught off guard by the fact that they understand these things. Instead, he lovingly gives himself to them. Jesus loved them to the end. Already, in this moment, we're getting a picture of not only Good Friday, but Easter Sunday. That that word, end, is telos. It means in fullness. It means in totality. It means all the way. These are the same words that will be echoed by Jesus on the cross when he says, it is finished. Jesus loved them fully, and this supper is a part of loving them fully. It is in this meal that Jesus teaches us not only what this meal is for and its purpose, but how it looks. And how you and I relate to one another in this meal. My whole life, my entire life, most of my life. I've come to this table as an individual. I think not in maybe a direct way, but in a passive way, I've been instructed to see that this table is for me to come to. It's for I need to I need to be I need to be quiet. I need to be reverent. I need to confess every sin under the sun, everything I've ever done, even the sins of this night, even this night, right to these moments, right, before I get to this table, that that's what it means to prepare, and that this is a me and God moment. I want to be very clear with you. This table is for believers. 
This table is for those who have trusted in Christ. But every gospel account, particularly John's, will help us to see that this table is for all of us. This is a corporate moment. This is a time of worship where introspection is absolutely okay. But there's more. We're to be people that take this meal together. Jesus does this really unique thing. He rises from supper. Um, now, there's not a really good way to pick, depict this without me getting either really, really embarrassed. Um, and I would risk that for you guys. I love you. Um, but look, you need to understand, there's, there's, Jesus is not sitting in one of these luxurious, cushiony, gray chairs as he takes as he takes this meal and gives this meal and he gives himself. He's actually reclining. It would be, it would be in this day, in this time, with these people, they would tr- traditionally be laid perhaps on their left elbow and they're reclined at the table. And Jesus does this unique thing. In a moment when it's least expected, he rises up. He does the equivalent of, I guess, the world's most holy push-up. And he gets up from this low, low table And he begins to wash the disciples' feet. This is out of the ordinary for a number of reasons. These Jews would rarely even wash a peer's feet. Unless, except out of great, great love. But that would be very, very rare. But Jews, so much so, revered one another that they wouldn't let Jewish slaves wash their feet. In fact, they would only reserve that typically for Gentile slaves to wash their feet. What Jesus does in this moment, when it says in verse 4 that he laid aside his outer garments, Jesus is taking taking off his outer garment. And to do this would be to signify, this is placing oneself and dressing as and taking on the presence of a slave. A menial slave. And then he washes their feet. This is not unorthodox. This is not strange. It's so much more than that. It's ridiculous is what it is. It's absolutely absurd. And yet he does this to show his disciples that when they come to this table, they're given the picture of what the Christian life looks like. that we're called to love one another. It's in the context of this table that believers are drawn into the reality that because they've been loved, they are now free to love one another. These three incredible things we consistently talk about happen at this table. We proclaim the past, that Christ has died. The present, that Christ is risen. And the future, that Christ will indeed come again. But in this moment, Jesus is drawing them to the reality that this is a moment where we look in, we examine ourselves, we long to trust the Lord in faith and believe the gospel anew in this moment, that we look up, that we look to the Lord, 
in adoration, in love, and confession, but also we look around. We look around at our brothers and sisters, at our neighbors, and we're drawn into an understanding of what the Christian life really looks like. Look at John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Because this is the place from which we get the name of what we're doing this evening. It's called Maundy Thursday. The Maundy comes from this place, from these moments, from what Jesus is doing with his disciples. This is John 13, 31 through 35. It says this, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. Mondi comes from this Latin word, uh, mandatum, and it ultimately means mandate. It means command. So in layman's terms, what we're celebrating tonight is Commandment Thursday. It doesn't have near the ring to it, right? Let's just shroud it in the mystery of Monday. That makes it kind of feel a lot better. Uh, I don't know a lot of people who are signed up to come to Commandment Thursday. But that's where you are. This is what we've taken on this evening. We've come to this place, and I kind of want to refer to it this way, truly, as Commandment Thursday, because surrounding this meal, Jesus tells his disciples this, I'm giving you a new commandment. They know to love one another. They're familiar with the Torah. They know the Deuteronomic text. They understand the Shema. They know how to love one another, and they know that they're instructed, at least, to love one another. But Jesus says there's more. Not just that you love one another, but that your love would look like this. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people you know will know, rather, that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. When you come to this table this evening, you're going to taste this bread. You'll feel it. And you'll drink this cup. And you'll feel it. It's a powerful thing that in this metaphysical moment, God gives us a picture of the certainty of his love by the certainty, by by the tangible reality of these elements. You'll feel it because it's a real thing. And God's drawing us into the reality of what he's really done. His real body. Jesus' real body broken for us. His real blood shed for us that we might be united to God. This moment is for you. This moment Jesus institutes this moment that foreshadows what is to come to this ragtag group of people 
who walk with truly the Son of God and yet understand not. And don't do what we do. Don't look back and say, I would have gotten it by this point. I would have understood better. Jesus gives these who love him, who don't fully understand, something to help them understand. Because after he's glorified, they'll understand. They'll understand, they'll know, they'll see. And they'll recognize that that body is broken for them. That blood is shed for them for the remission of sins. On an individual level, truly. But more. But to be a body. To love one another. To care for one another. The one who would come not to be served, but to serve. And in this moment offer himself as a ransom for many. That's what's about to happen. Jesus helps us understand how to live out the Christian life and that truly in living it out, we're actually living in it. So come to this table tonight and believe the gospel. Believe this truth that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And understand that God did not give us this, that Jesus did not institute this to be an act, this thing that we do, a ritual to be observed occasionally, if you're like me, you observe it quarterly, you know, or monthly, or, or, or that, that is not the marker of what this meal means. It actually means a lot more. I'm going to close with this. Um, a really, really wise person pointed out to me that if you read the Gospels and you look to the account of the Lord's Supper, John deviates from him. It does something really different. In fact, John's gospel doesn't really pick up the same storyline as Matthew and Mark and Luke until John chapter 18. Something really different is happening from the presentation of the supper onward in John chapter 13 all the way through 17. I want to walk through these really, really quickly. I know you're pumped about that. Four big chapters. Let's do it, right? But just thematically, let's walk through these. We see in 13 this new commandment that surrounds the Lord's Supper. All the while, the language that Jesus is using is that he's going to depart. Is that he's going away. No more is this felt than during this supper and after it. Jesus will truly walk to Calvary. And he will be gone from their presence. This little while that he's with them that he describes becomes more and more. And the disciples feel this tension. Because what happens in John chapter 14? Jesus tells them what? Not to fear. Right? That he's going to prepare a place for them. 
And if it weren't so, he wouldn't have said so. And Thomas would come to him and say, how, do we, how can we know where you're going? How do we know where you're going? And then Jesus would state what we sang earlier. That he's the way, and that he's the truth, and that he's the life. And the way to him is through the Father. And then he will communicate to them about the Holy Spirit, the helper that will come to them. That's in John chapter 14. In John chapter 15, we get this picture of what we also sang. That we're to abide in him. We branches abide in the vine. We trust in him. We abide in him. How do we do that? How can we do that? We see in John chapter 16, we see the detail that he gives to what the Holy Spirit's role is in our life. And then in John chapter 17, you and I, me and you, little old us, get prayed for by Jesus. As Jesus in the high priestly prayer, in the last words uttered by Jesus before he goes to Calvary, what what Jesus will say is that he desires for all of those who believe in him through these, these disciples. So that's you and me. Now granted, we're way down the line, all right? But it's because of their faith that we have trusted in Jesus. That faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. The word has come to us, and now we've trusted in Jesus. And Jesus prays that we would be united. That actually you and I would love one another in the same way to the same degree that the Father loves the Son. Why am I telling you all this? Why am I telling you the the story of John 13 through 17? Because it's all rooted in, it's all grounded in the very work of the Spirit. And ultimately, all of that still is kind of in the place of where the other Gospels would continually talk about the Lord's Supper. John does this to help us understand, to really get at, that it's the Holy Spirit, the helper that works in us, that causes us to abide. And friends, we don't think of it this way, but this is abiding. Taking this Bread and taking this cup is not a ritual. It's not a thing we do. It's actually meant to be and truly is a spirit-filled moment where we abide in Christ. That this is a moment where we pledge allegiance to Christ, where we confess to the world and to people around us that Christ is our treasure, that he is our prize, that he is above all, that we love him with all that we are. And then we also confess that we depend on him. It has to be him. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. It is only Jesus, and it's only because of this body broken for us and this blood that is shed for us. I want to read to you quickly uh, from John chapter 6, verses 48 through 58. It says this. John would write and say, uh, describe Jesus' words and, and, and look at what he says. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. I want to acknowledge from the front end that you can read these words and say, all right, this is getting weird. We can do that. We can just in a human way, we can say that some of this seems strange. And not just like archaic strange and old strange, but like this is feeding on flesh, this drinking blood, this is strange. What Jesus is doing in this moment, even leading up to the moments where he will institute this meal, and John will describe the work of the Spirit as he's setting the stage, he's setting the foundation, this place for us to understand that what we take tonight And what we behold, even with our eyes, that we touch and we see, this is not a thing that we do to do a thing. This is us confessing our love for Christ, but only because we've been loved first. And you've been loved to the end, friends. It's really unique to me that John draws out In this moment, he would say that Jesus has loved his friends to the end. Because the end hasn't come yet of his earthly ministry. But the picture of Jesus' love is ultimately without end. And this is why John can say this. So tonight, when you come to this table, I would urge you to feed on Christ's flesh and drink his blood and abide in him as he abides in you. That scares some of you because a lot of you just thought, I didn't think we were Catholic and I think Michael's taking us down a different road. This is not transubstantiation. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that by faith and by the Holy Spirit, this is a moment Or individually, but together we confess Christ and we compassionately love one another. This ought to be the place where we look at one another and ultimately say, I want to love you as Christ has loved me. And this is a meal that we should celebrate, truly. I want to invite you in this moment to stand. And we're going to take a moment to pray. But what Paxton said is true and it's deeply helpful. The very thing that qualifies you to be at this table is the fact that you're ultimately unqualified. You're not righteous. You're a sinner. It's for that reason that you can come and taste and see that the Lord is good, that you can abide in Him. We're continually called to eat this meal, to proclaim Christ's death, 
until he comes. Because this moment is not just the last moment in a service. This isn't just that thing we do every once in a while that's really Christian and that has a lot of mystery and we don't understand. It's a place of abiding. So I would urge you to do these things as you come to this table, as believers throughout the centuries have come, to this meal that Christ has instituted on this night. You take the body, this picture of Christ's flesh, broken for you, and you eat it. And you take this cup, this very real liquid that resembles, that pictures Christ's blood shed for you for the remission of sins. I would urge you to do this, believe the gospel. Allow God to ascribe to you faith because of what you take. And I would urge you to do this, to love one another, to truly love one another. This is, this is living in the reality of the gospel is not just walking to the table with tunnel vision, but to look around at the people that God has delivered, that God has redeemed that God has drawn into family with you, but more importantly, you into family with, all right? You get to share in this space with with them. As a strategy guy, at times, this seems like a weird strategy to show the world who Jesus is. That in this moment, we would take this moment and loving one another is enough. It is enough. The scriptures say it's enough. It is from this place that we will love one another and then you'll love one another. When I see you on Crossbridge, you'll love me and I'll love you and the world will see that. And, and when I see you at Publix, literally, the world will see that we love one another and God will begin to use these moments. And it starts here with body and blood. So if you will, take a moment. And let's pray together and remember the gospel. Heavenly Father, we confess that this moment is, Father, so rich with history. God, this meal that we celebrate was instituted by your son, our Savior, so long ago. there's mystery and there's things that we don't understand. Father, would you draw us to the place where we understand that this meal is the place in which we come to abide. To rest in what you've done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of your son Jesus. For he is the way and the truth and the life. And Father, we cannot come to you apart from your son. So, Father, for for those who have believed in Jesus, who have trusted in Jesus, my brothers and sisters in this place, would you draw us to the table and allow us to abide, to hear these words proclaimed over us? Father, that, that Christ's body was broken for us, his blood shed for us, and now we have the beautiful opportunity from being loved actually live out the gospel and to love one another Father as Christ has loved us Father cause us to taste and see that you're good in Jesus
Jesus' name. Amen.